You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Here's Nate. One great word that could be used to describe the book of Ephesians is the word blessing. Paul uses the word in the third verse of the first chapter. Right out of the gate, he says that we have been blessed uh, in Christ by the Father with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And really, the book of Ephesians is, especially in the front half of the book, an explanation of the great spiritual blessings that are ours as a result of the message of the gospel and our faith and trust in that great message, our hope and confidence that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and his uh, cross. Uh, chapter 1 deals with the great blessings that were given to us at our conversion. But in chapter 2, Paul is dealing more with the uh, reality of what we used to be and what we now are as a result of the blood of Jesus. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, which we've already studied, Paul talks about the great um, lostness of mankind. He tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed our own passions, but that God made us together uh, alive with Christ by the blood of Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. He says, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one uh, may boast. We have to know the bad news in one sense before we can celebrate and rejoice over the good news. Well, part of the bad news previously for the church in Ephesus is that they were Gentiles. They were without the traditions, the customs, without the word of God. They were alienated, as Paul is going to tell us, from the commonwealth of Israel. And so Paul wants them to understand you who were far off and not just from God, but far off from these positions of blessing that Israel had occupied, you by the blood of Jesus had been brought, have been brought near, and God has unified now uh, as one all of his people uh, here on earth. And so he begins this section in verse 11, where he's going to explain that the great divide between Jew and Gentile has been solved in Christ he says in verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so, Paul begins here by saying, okay, if all of this is true, these great blessings, the great despair that used to be ours, but now the great life that is ours in Christ, if all of this is true, then you Gentiles, you know, in the flesh, that's just your nationality, that's who you are by birth, you know, you are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And of course, uh, that issue the issue of circumcision was an issue that divided the Jew from the Gentile. That outward form of circumcision was designed to communicate something. We are separated unto God. We are seeking to be a clean people, consecrated 
unto him. And oftentimes the Jew would refer to the Gentile as the uncircumcision. But Paul says, hey, listen, I know that's the divide. There's the uncircumcision, there's the circumcision. He gives a little editorial note there, though, at the end of verse 11, which he, when he says, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, he's saying, listen, I, I realize that for the Jew, their circumcision is a fleshly, external, physical circumcision. It hints at the idea that there is a better circumcision out there. And even though that's not where Paul really goes in this particular text, he does go there in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, he calls it the circumcision of Christ, a circumcision not made with hands. In other words, and he calls it the putting off of the body of the flesh. In other words, there is a new nature that those who are in Christ receive. It's a real transformation internally, a real cutting off of the old nature, not something physical, not something uh, that just uh, has a look of spirituality to it, but something real, something actual that has occurred inside of the heart. But, but Paul sort of sets the tone here, back in Ephesians 2, verse 11, by saying, listen, I know there's this great divide, the uncircumcision versus the circumcision. He says, so you that are of the uncircumcision, the non-Jewish world, he says, remember, verse 12, that you were at that time. What time? Well, the time that they were lost and separated uh, from God. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He lists now five attributes that he wants them to remember that as Gentiles, they did not possess uh, because they did not know the Lord and they were not a part of the uh, God's program for Israel here on earth, but that because they've received Christ, they have now in one sense uh, received. But first of all, they were separated, he says, from Christ. They were separated from the Messiah. That's the, the title Christ indicates Messiah. They had no hope of the Messiah. They were separated from him. They were, number two, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. All the rights that Israel had, the arrangement that God had made with Israel, they did not have those rights. Number three, strangers to the covenants of promise. There were great promises of blessing that God had bestowed upon the people of Israel. Having, number four, no hope. In other words, they were without this expectation that God would work and move in, that, in their midst. And the worst of all, number five, they were without God in this world. And notice what Paul wants them to do with this information. He wants them to remember. He wants them to reflect. He says, I want you to remember this horrible condition. I want you to remember that you were without the Lord, that you were outside of the realm of blessing. You were outside of the realm of the people of Israel. You were the lost sheep. You were the lost coin you were the prodigal son you were out there you were lost you were far uh, from god you need to remember that as you remember the great blessings that you have in him and i think for us you know we i think in our generation and age we probably don't think as much about the great divide between jew and gentile we're a couple of thousand years into this thing called the church uh, we 
sometimes take for granted that God has chosen to deal with the Gentile world and open the opportunity and the door for all to be saved without conversion to Judaism and the temple rites and all of that. And sometimes we might take that for granted, but it's good to go back and remember that as you read your Old Testament, and there were promises of the Messiah, and there were indications that God would reach and would love the Gentile world, but to be living in an era where the blood of Jesus reaches anyone, male, female, Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Christ reaches all, can enter into all, can wash all. It is good for us to remember that this was not always the case and that we have this great blessing now in Christ Jesus. Paul tells them, remember that you are far off from these things. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says, listen, that's what it used to be like, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, the promises, the covenants without God in this world. But now, here's what Christ has done. Those of you who were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. There is a spiritual intimacy and union that we have with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We were not redeemed, as Peter says, with gold or silver or precious metals, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 14 here in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. He's our prince of peace. He's the one who gives us peace. And it's the foundation of Christ by which we have peace, reconciliation, uh, with God. The, the war is over. Wrath, uh, God's wrath is not pointed in the direction of those who have placed their faith and trust and confidence in Christ. We have peace by the blood of Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 14 that the blood, the cross, the peace of Christ has made us both one. It's made us both one and it's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now when he refers to this, he's actually not at this moment referring to the separation between God and man, but he's referring to the separation between Jew and Gentile. He's made us all one. And really in one sense you can make a case and say that if the blood of Jesus is able to bring together Jew and Gentile, then every division between uh, or found within humanity beyond the separation between Jew and Gentile, every division is a lesser division than the division between Jew and Gentile. The division of age, for instance, or race, or education, or class, or style, or politics, these are minor divisions in comparison to the great division between Jew and Gentile. You know, when you go to your local church and attend there or lift your hands and worship there or serve there, you know, as you're there, you look around and hopefully you're able to see people that are 
a generation or two removed from your generation. And as you do, you should recognize that even though that generational difference is a broad gap, you should also recognize that the blood of Jesus draws you near and makes you one with one another. Or perhaps as you go to church, you're in fellowship, you're in your small group or whatever it might be, you look around and you see different cultures, different races, different backgrounds represented in one room. And obviously there's a comfort level with a culture that we understand, a background or upbringing that is uh, relatable to us. However, it's important to, to realize no matter what your background might be, no matter what their uh, culture and race might be, there is great oneness that is provided by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is announcing a great possibility uh, available to us by the blood of Jesus. Notice he says there in verse 14, breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now this is probably a reference to the uh, wall that was in the temple courtyard or uh, on the temple mount that was separating the Gentiles from the Jews. There was a court of the Gentiles with a sign placed on the in that court that said, you know, for the wall that the Gentiles could not go past, that sign said, let no one of any nation come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Whoever is caught doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. Sometimes we have signs that say uh, that it, you know, perhaps there will be a punishment for such and such a crime. But here there was a sign in the temple that said, listen, if you as a Gentile cross past this fence and enter into the holy place, know that you will die. There was a separating wall, a dividing wall of hostility. And that seems to be what Paul is referring to in verse 14. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus has made a way for Jew and Gentile to be one together. That hostility is no longer present. You might remember there in Acts chapter 21, Paul actually returned to Jerusalem and went to the temple to worship the Lord. As a Jew, that's what he wanted to do. It was his right and prerogative. But a rumor began to swirl that he had brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into that place, past that dividing wall. Now Paul's theology said that that dividing wall has been done away with uh, by the flesh of Jesus Christ broken down in his flesh but practically speaking he wouldn't bring a person past it he was speaking of the spiritual wall of hostility he had not brought Trophimus uh, there he had respected those guidelines but to understand that the blood of Jesus has paved the way for unity uh, between uh, men and women boys and girls different races cultures climates it's important to remember sometimes we get in conflict with other believers and it's hard for us to imagine how to be at peace with them. Please remember the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 15 by telling us how this reconciliation occurred. He said, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might, verse 16, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul continues to talk about that reconciliation. Part of the problem, of course, was the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What about the Ten Commandments? And in another sense, what about the commandment written upon the heart of even the Gentile? You know, Paul explained in Romans chapter 2 that when people do not have the law, they themselves express that they do have a law when they obey the law. You know, a parent looks at their child and says, don't lie. Lying is wrong. Or when someone says, hey, that hurt me. That was wrong. You should not do that to me. Don't treat me that way. What they're expressing is that a law has been written on their hearts, that God has put it there, that they understand that to hurt others is wrong, to lie to others is wrong. And when they then go against the law, whether it's just been written on their hearts or written on the Ten Commandments as it was for the Jews, there is something that's against them. And there is a debt unto God. But Paul tells us that Jesus abolished the law of commandments by, of course, his blood on the cross and created one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace. So what's the new man that Christ created uh, from the two, in place of the two? You have Jew and Gentile. What's the one new man? Uh, this is an, an allusion to the new creation, you know, that when you give your life to Christ, old things pass away, all things have become new. It appears that what he's referring to is a new kind of man, and I believe he's referring to the church, that the church is a new man in place of that previous division. Now, I, of course, do believe that a day is coming where the Lord is going to turn his attention once again to the nation of Israel, that there will be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, that there will be the final 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, as the Old Testament refers to, a time where God will deal with the nation of Israel once again. But in the meantime, here we are in the church age, the church era, there is a new man in place of the two where there is peace, Jew and Gentile alike, able to come to the Lord and be reconciled together. And that's why he says in verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God. This speaks of an intensified reconciliation. It is total, it is complete, it is full, it is thorough. One person said it this way, this describes a primal unity to one another, but more importantly, to God. We are unified completely to him by the blood of Jesus Christ. All oh, that Christians would remember this. We so easily think that our actions separate us from the love of Christ or that something, principality or power or doctrine, trial, separates us from the love of God. He says, no, you have an intense, reconciled unity to God. The hostility, Paul says in verse 16, has been killed. If we are now one with God, brothers and sisters, we have the potential of being one with our fellow brother and sister in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 17 now, he says, now this is what you need to do. You need to receive God's grace. He says, verse 17, he came and preached pre peace 
to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now Paul's just going to give everybody a long list of the wonderful grace of God. Whether Jew or Gentile, this is what you have in him, Paul's going to say. He wants us to run in this. He wants us to experience this. And he says, listen, Jesus came. He preached peace to you, whether you were far off and peace to you, even if you were near. And this is another uh, reference to Jew and Gentile. Gentile, the one that was far off in the mind of Paul and Jew, the one that was near in the mind of Paul. Either way, whether near or far, it was never close enough. The peace wasn't there. It's kind of like when I used to play basketball. You could shoot the ball and, and you could rim it out. It could go in and out and roll around the rim and you would almost make it, but at the very end it would pop out and you had barely missed. Or you could shoot that ball and you could airball it, not even touch the rim, be so far from making that shot. Both of those shots counted as nothing. Neither of them scored a single point. And I think Paul is saying the same thing. Listen, far off, near, you both needed peace with God. That's what Jesus came for. He came to preach peace. Now, of course, in, even in this text, we've seen that Jesus is our, himself our peace, that he made peace for us, and now he preached peace. And, of course, we ask ourselves, how did he preach peace to us? Well, just the message of the cross is the message of peace. And I think ultimately that's the proclamation that we're discussing here. You look to Jesus at the cross and it shouts loudly that God has made a way for there to be peace with man. Of course, the church preached peace on behalf of uh, the Lord. The apostles preached peace as they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself uh, after his resurrection, introduced peace to his disciples. But ultimately, the proclamation of peace is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that peace proclaimed. He came and preached peace. This is really the whole purpose of the atonement in the first place, that there was war between God and man, but that Jesus came and preached peace. The, the issue is settled between God and man by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ. This is the whole purpose of the atonement. You know, some sadly point to the cross and say, well, look at that, an extreme example of selflessness. Or here's God identifying with human suffering. Or here's God ransoming us from Satan. But, and, and even though the cross is, of course, all of those things, it's him ransoming us from the penalty of our sin. He came to give us peace with God. And uh, you really have no reason for the cross without that uh, need, the, the need for peace with God. He says, verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Whether Jew or Gentile, through Christ, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. Access has been granted to us. In the Old Testament, Esther hit a point where she needed to go in and visit her husband, King Ahasuerus, a most powerful man in the world at that time. And, and she, uh, you know, in that culture, as, as the queen, she couldn't just walk in at any moment 
she had to have an invitation, but she needed to see the king even without an invitation there in the book of Esther. And she, upon entering into his courts, needed him to hold out his scepter, which indicated, this is fine. She can come into my presence. She has access to me. And we, of course, as believers, have been granted access to the great king by the blood of Jesus. We have an introduction to him. We can approach him. So much so that in Romans chapter 8, Paul explains that the spirit of slavery has been removed from us, that we might receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, God is, is our Father now. We have that kind of access to him, an, an, an accessible Father, a Father of deep love and compassion and care. This is who we have because of Christ. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So membership is now given. And he mentions a few different ways in which this membership is given. He says, first of all, no longer strangers and aliens. Uh, we, we've formed one new nation, so to speak, in Christ. We're no longer lost. We have a citizenship. He says, you are citizens with the saints. And uh, as much as I might be a citizen of the United States, I am more strongly than that a citizen of heaven, a citizen of God's kingdom. And, and then he gets away from the citizenship, national uh, allegory, and he says, and members of the household of God. We have a new nation, but we also have a new family, members of the household of God. We are born again, born into his family. Other parts of the New Testament tell us that he has adopted us. And so we are in, we are into this new family. God is an adopting God, a birthing God. We are his, we are a part of his family. And what a beautiful thing, be a part of his family, to be one with him, to be his child. He says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation that was laid, you know, the, the word of the apostles, the word of the prophets, and of course the focus of the apostles and the prophets was Christ Jesus himself being that cornerstone. Paul told the, the uh, Corinthian church, he said, listen, no other foundation can anyone lay yet besides the one that has been laid. Jesus Christ. He is that foundation. He is that cornerstone. Beautiful picture, by the way, the cornerstone. The idea that the whole building will be out of balance and out of shape if Jesus Christ is not in that cornerstone foundational place. You've got to have him at the base before you can build up. So many false doctrines, so much legalism stems from trying to build a structure without a great cornerstone and foundation of Jesus Christ. But when someone gets that foundation and gets that cornerstone, you can then build upon uh, that life. Unfortunately, so many preach a message of simple self-esteem or prosperity or 
whatever it might be, but it's foundationless. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Paul is going to use this idea in a couple of chapters to talk about our growth together, our joining together. Here he uses it in a building-like analogy, the framework of a building. We are a part of his building. We are a part of his church. We are a part of his family founded upon Jesus Christ. In him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells among his people. We are now the home of God. You know, in Genesis, you see that God walked with his people. In Exodus, God dwelt with his people through the tabernacle, which became the temple. In the Gospels, God dwelt with mankind by sending his son, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. But nowadays, God dwells with us by living inside of us as the church. We are his dwelling place. The, the, the church is you, person that's believed upon the Lord. And we gather in buildings because the Lord has asked us to come together as people. So whether you come together in a building or down on the beach or whatever it might be, but when we come together with the authority structure that God has outlined for us in the New Testament, we are gathering together as the church, but it's not the building that makes us the church. It's the, it's the blood of Jesus inside of us that makes us into the church. But we are the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Great blessings that we have in Christ. We used to be alienated, but now we are His dwelling place. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.